Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to episode 27 of The Hilo, the news and pop culture podcast brought to you weekly by journalists Dolly Alderton and Pandora Sykes. Welcome to our third author special. Some of you may remember the jolly old chats we've had with journalist and author of the party Elizabeth Day and Rennie Edo Lodge and we're back in the studio today with comedian Rosie Wilby who has written a book called Is Monogamy Dead? which came out in August. Rosie started writing the book in 2013 after she found herself questioning everything we are taught about monogamy in Western society. Welcome to the studio Rosie. Hi, lovely to be here. Um, just say the readers can get into the meat of your book right away <laughs> and um, your beautifully unique voice we thought we might um, kick off with a reading from you okay then and uh, you particularly wanted this one <laughs> yes I did request this this segment okay then I'd been too much of a monogamous prude to realize but lesbians are sometimes allowed to have casual sex <laughs> once every two months apparently because that's how frequently the locker room, a gay sauna just off South London's leafy and affluent Cleaver Square, is hijacked by the women. Now that I was writing a show on sex and fidelity, I could visit under the comforting guise of research. <laughs> I'd been told tales of wild excess about what went on there behind the clouds of steam and sweat by gay male friends. Would women behave with similar animalistic abandon? I heard about the sporadic women's event through my friend Belle, who described herself as solo poly and explained this as engaging in multiple ethically non-exclusive relationships while abandoning the hierarchical structure of a primary relationship. To her, a lesbian sauna was no big deal. She had nobody to report her whereabouts to and the partners she was with would totally get it anyway. Whereas to me, its very existence was a big neon sign, informing me just what a clueless, closed-minded idiot I was. <laughs> Belle and I agreed not to cramp one another's style. I would leave her to her own devices or vices. Yet if I was in any way uncomfortable, I was to go and discreetly belch in her ear. <laughs> It was the most ridiculous safe word ever. I wasn't even sure I could belch on demand. Yet she had once heard a friend and his wife using it as a code and the idea had tickled her enough to copy it. An amiable, bespectacled butch who seemed to be in charge proposed an icebreaker game in the cramped bar upstairs. Even though most of us were still clothed and sipping milky tea from polystyrene cups, there was a giggly frisson, the airless space rich with pheromones. Then a slender-toned woman a few years my senior strutted over. I'm Helen, she purred, fluttering eyelashes thick with mascara, brownie-grey curls cascading round long earrings, droplets of silver pointing down to her glistening neck and chest. Rosie, I said, instinctively offering a handshake, a formal and robust greeting to legitimise what might follow. <laughs> what do you want to do tonight? Oh, God, I hadn't prepared for this question. 
I thought to myself, I wouldn't mind an intelligent discussion on Britain's role in the European Union. (laughs) Instead, I gulped. I looked over at Belle, wondered if I could employ our code this early into the evening. Fortunately, the bell rang. A pretty Asian femme, barely half my age, whirled round to catch my eye. Long painted fingernails, giving her sexual tourism away. (laughs) You look like a film star, she proclaimed. Thanks, I said. Which one? (laughs) This girl clearly had no idea what she was doing, which meant I wouldn't be exposed as not knowing what I was doing either. Once we descended to the steamy, dimly lit basement, a blonde woman started nonchalantly flicking through a magazine. A strange mix of aloof and slutty, she pulled down her bikini top to rest under her breasts. Then, in a moment of OCD, started folding towels and tidying. <laughs> <laughs> this was hardly the hedonistic gangbang I'd anticipated. But then, the Asian girl leaned forward from the bench above and whispered, Let's do something. The steam room was insanely hot, like climbing inside a kettle. There's no way I'd be able to stay in there long enough to make a woman orgasm. We started kissing awkwardly, like kids playing spin the bottle. Then, as the steam parted, I saw a familiar face. I tried to concentrate on kissing, but kept looking over. Who is that? Ah, oh, yes, she's a regular at my gigs who often tweets afterwards with not entirely welcome feedback. <laughs> I imagined her judging me this time, holding up a scorecard. Hi, Rosie. Hi, I blurted, sitting upright. And we all started chatting, as women do, then went upstairs for another cup of milky tea. <laughs> I just love that. You Thank read you. that so, like, mellifluously. I could have listened to that <laughs> with a cup of milky tea. But also what I love is I think that <laughs> Mellifluously, that's... I like that word. <laughs> I think that's so many people in a sexy sauna. That's what you said when I spoke to you today. I said, I just love that sex sort the of thing. The dribbly shower and you said, I just found it so comforting that I know that's exactly how I would be. <laughs> I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd probably be the woman folding towels, but without the bikini top down. <laughs> the fully clothed woman... Folding towels, clearly not participating. A full body suit. <laughs> exactly. Um, so just to begin, why don't you tell us a bit about how you started this personal exploration into non-monogamy? And how the book as well came around. Well, those two things are, of course, very, very linked because I'm a comedian, as you know, mm-hmm. and I did a show... Oh, about eight years ago now, in 2009, called The Science of Sex, um, which was unbeknown to me then was the beginning of a whole trilogy about love and relationships. I became fascinated in presenting some serious points about the neuroscience of how we behave in love and in relationships in a very comedic, accessible way through a comedy show. Um, And then I suppose my personal life altered because the relationship I was in when I was writing The Science of Sex ended. Um, and for me, quite abruptly and, and in a sort of rather ambiguous and unexplained way. So around a similar time, a lot of my friends' relationships were breaking up too. And I realised that particularly among my peer group of, of gay women, most of us were kind of serial monogamists. And I actually became aware of of one friend who sort of opened the book with a story of one friend, obviously I've changed the names, but one friend who was, it turns out, having an affair. And obviously Mm. that's a really awkward position to be in because you kind of realise something's going on, but you also really like that person's long-term partner. It's like, oh God, am I supposed to say something? And so I became aware of all these tricky intricacies around fidelity, which I hadn't thought about too much before because I talk about in the book how growing up, TV dramas about cheating, um, it was always like a man and it was always played by Trevor Eve. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And so binary as well. So (laughs) totally terrible, horrible man, 
heroic woman. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. This binary idea, like you say, that women are very, very well behaved in relationships. And I thought, well, I'm going to be all right because I'm gay, so it's going to be fine. Um, and then I kind of realised it wasn't really like that and that for all of us, whatever our gender is, whatever our sexual orientation is, monogamy is a, it's a little bit of a conundrum. Um, so I started researching... Um, the topic for my 2013 Edinburgh show um, because I already had a show about feminism in the bag but I thought God, who's going to come to a show about feminism <laughs> Bridget Christie won the main prize um, <laughs> that particular year so yes so I started doing lots of reading and one of the key pieces of research I did was I designed a survey asking a few different questions but the key one was what actually counts as cheating because I realized that was less black and white than we think and that mm. revealed that there was this whole spectrum outside of the sexual activity that we might think of as cheating where there's a spectrum of emotional monogamy as well which is where things I think get really really interesting because a lot of people voted for things like falling in love with somebody else or texting or emailing or staying up all night talking to somebody and also it became apparent that many of my friends had different language that they'd kind of invented because our language around love and friend and all these kind of binary mm words is so ambiguous so one of my friends um, told me that she had love affair friendships and she'd kind of decided to call them that to denote some very deep kind of romantic friendships that were not sexual but but had a real history and a real mm. a real intimacy. Mm. I was so happy when um, I read that bit because it's the way that I feel Pandora's the same. Pandora's got a group of very close friends that she's grown up with. And the way that I think of those particular friendships is I do honour commitments to them as if it were a marriage. You know, we know each other's families. We kind of prioritise each other. We have a really deep understanding of each other. We have a history. It looks like we have a bright future together that does feel a step beyond friendship. So it's so wonderful to see that described in your book. Yeah, I mean, Dolly's written a book that comes out in um, Humble Brag, that comes out <laughs> in um, February. And it's it's all about love. But what mm. is surprising, but shouldn't have been surprising to me reading it, because it is so you, is that actually it wasn't just about sexual love, as you say. A lot of it was about falling in love with female friends and, and those relationships and how they can hold you up and sustain you and propel you in life. What I found really interesting about the book is that it is incredibly nuanced and explorative and sort of gentle in its journey, which feels so accessible. But the title is obviously a little bit provocative. powerful mm. and provocative. And I actually left it in my local coffee shop and I went to pick it up the next day. <laughs> and the Eastern Had European... Been it? Uh, well, the Eastern European barista just said, well, is it? As he... That was not an Eastern European <laughs> accent. I don't know what it was. Sort of Poirot. And he handed it over and I was like, oh, I'm not sure yet. I haven't read it. As if you were somehow going to give me the answer to whether or I not love that monogamy that. was dead. But I imagine it can make people quite combative. Like, well, how do you know that, Rosie? Why is it dead? Why are you telling me I can't do it? Yeah. Yeah, and they seem because, to miss the point that it is a question. Yeah, uh, well, as, about but also, as, as you explore in the book, it's this huge tenet of modern society that we really rely on, even though, you know, the divorce rate's higher than ever and clearly being sexually monogamous is not something that works for everyone. And yet we have never considered adjusting the scale or, or, or looking at what we expect of a modern relationship. So it, I think it's funny that it does, as you say, yeah. elicit maybe it does. a reaction. It does. Um, and I think I deliberately chose that originally for the Edinburgh show because in Edinburgh you have to sort of grab attention. You know, I, I mean, I think it's a very good PR move. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Can we talk a little bit about non-monogamy as a concept? Because for some of our listeners it might be... Um, 
a, a kind of brave new world and something mm-hmm. they're not very they, yeah, they sure. don't have an understanding of. How would you define non-monogamy and polyamory and the kind of differences between the two for people who aren't familiar with it? Well, it's 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 ambiguous because of course people use different terms in mm. different ways to suit their own particular situations because it's very much about communicating boundaries and your needs and desires with your partner or indeed partners and, and working out what works for you. I mean, monogamy derives from the Greek monoskamos, which meant sort of one one marriage for life, whereas now we, of course, have adapted it to tend to mean one marriage at a time, and we're serially monogamous. Um, and on the flip side of that, polyamory is, of course, many loves. So the interesting thing about that is that it actually means lots of multiple ethically negotiated and agreed consensual loving relationships and those don't need to actually be sexual Mm. so arguably you could simultaneously be polyamorous and monogamous Mm. which is the really interesting thing they're not necessarily direct opposites Um, non-monogamy the people I've spoken to tend to use that more to mean a specifically open relationship in terms of sexual partners outside of the relationship, whereas um, the people who are doing it in a slightly more kind of emotional way and counting all relationships, including friendships, as relationships, and sometimes some people, those people might call themselves relationship anarchists, um, they would tend to probably towards using more polyamory rather than non-monogamy, which I think people who are in open relationships might might lean more towards. But there's a bit of fluidity about how people use the term. So it's the way that so many of us are living already. It's just that I didn't necessarily know the labels for it. So when you're talking yeah. about polyamory, definitely Dolly and I have. I'm married. Dolly's currently single, but both of us have polyamorous relationships. They're just, as you say, not sexual necessarily. Yeah. There was a great um, quote that you paraphrased by Alan de Botton, which I think really summarises the struggle in a monogamous relationship, oh, yes. whether yeah. you are non-monogamous or monogamous, about why anyone would seek to inflict their true selves entirely on one soul. And I've definitely felt that before. Yeah. I've definitely felt quite sorry for my husband that he's expected to shoulder <laughs> the entirety of me. <laughs> I know. You know, the book was very much a response to this idea that you know, in films where we we do kind of see the the happy couple get together right at the end, as if that is the happy ending and everything's going to be fine from then on, and with no realistic kind of portrayal of how complex a relationship is as it plays out over time and how many challenges we face and how we do need those other friends and those Mm. other support networks there's really this danger that we do suddenly think oh I've met somebody and now it's fine I don't need to make an effort seeing my friends we'll just stay in and watch tv and eat pizza and it'll all be lovely Mm. and it's it's a mistake to think whenever I've interviewed polyamorous people before it's a an analogy they come back to over and over again where they're just like you wouldn't have one friend who was your friend you got drunk with, went out dancing with, <laughs> went to the museums with, had really big emotional connections with, went travelling with. You know, you have different friends for different things because it's too much for one person to be expected to provide definitely all of that nourishment. And I suppose that's kind of the founding ethos of having multiple relationships or partners. Yeah, it's a, it's a heck of a lot of a burden and pressure on, on one single person, isn't mm-hmm. it? To expect them to be all things at at all times. The High Low is sponsored by Sainsbury's Home. Sainsbury's Home prides itself on delivering great quality design-led products at very nice prices, aka high quality design at high street prices. Sainsbury's Home has a dedicated in-house design team of 14 and 80% of Sainsbury's Home product is designed by the in-house creative team. For 
autumn, the Sainsbury's home team have taken inspiration from the great British countryside, from the interiors of inner-city boutique hotels and cocktail lounges. Authentic design is at the heart of how the 14 in-house designers create their exclusive prints and palettes, and this season, each trend has a signature fragrance blended exclusively for Sainsbury's home to evoke all the warmth and comfort and spice of winter. So the ranges available this September are Nordic Skies, inspired by the Nordic scenery and lifestyle, this muted tone theme exudes contemporary style, embossed textures and soft accenting of colours in materials such as wood, mercury, glass and grey faux fur. Renaissance Boutique indulge in the glamour and grandeur of the 1920s with stylish home accessories, geometric patterns and opulent skilled craftsmanship. Then you have Woodland Walk, which captures the tones and textures of an autumnal country walk, creating cosy living space with warm aubergine and mulberry colours used across chunky knits and patterned textiles. The Sainsbury's in-house design team have created a unique narrative of a woodland scene with hair figures in rich brass metallic finish and an exclusive fragrance of applewood and clove. Enjoy all of those. There is something for everyone. Thank you very much to Sainsbury's Home. Something Dolly and I were talking about that, Dolly, you raised is um, the idea of jealousy, which is Mm. what a lot of people who are used to being a monogamous relationship would probably say it's definitely something I thought as soon as I picked up the book was, but I'm just such a jealous person. I just wouldn't I wouldn't be able to imagine a a, a secondary or a tertiary partner or to be that partner Mm. myself. And how would you kind of respond to that, particularly with that idea of compersion or flubbly? Fru- is it flubbly or flubbly? I'm just well, obsessed with this word. <laughs> it's a good one, isn't it? Um, there's a glossary at the back of the book. Yeah, it's really um, useful. With, um, with some new terms that I came across on, on this journey and adventure of talking to lots of people, opening up their relationships. There's a few terms I'm suggesting that I've sort of made up or some of my friends have made up. And one of my favourites is um, if you feel you've reached your threshold of relationships, you can say you're polysaturated, <laughs> which is a good one. But also, yes, frubbly is a lovely one. Um, and there's also a word compersion, and they mean the same thing. And that is when you are actually rather than feeling jealous or threatened feeling turned on by your partner finding happiness with somebody else and being with somebody else um so one of the key interviews towards the start of the book is with a comedian friend of mine kate smirthwaite and her partner male partner james they're a straight couple and um they have opened up their relationship and they've really got beyond all of that sort of feeling of of jealousy and threat by kind of communicating and talking about what they're doing and I think they feel secure that their relationship is the primary relationship and they have a commitment to that. Um, So they feel happy about the other person going off and and having a great time because they're coming back. Mm. I think the thing is as well with relationships is that it's not one size fits all. It can't possibly be. Mm. So, and this is the thing that's also obviously worth reminding people writing the A4 letters is that anything that's an exploration is only a threat to your relationship if you let it be. You don't, you know, you can pick and choose by sort of what suits you. And I actually really like the way that you allowed your fear to sort of air itself, especially at the beginning. And I found myself really nodding along to the bit where you said, 
if nobody settles down and commits anymore, if we pursue individual happiness at the cost of other people's feelings, if we leave so carelessly, how can we build and maintain a stable sense of community? And I'm really interested in that sort of that fear around non-monogamy, even though no one's saying mm. you must yeah. have this It was just a kind of fear. I think that really came from how angry I felt at this friend of mine who, who was having an affair. And then sort of just one morning casually told her partner that, that she was leaving. Um, and I just kind of felt, oh, that really disrupts like a whole friendship group. Yeah. Um, I talk about and a, belief a sort of entire landscape of friendship being eroded and, and this sense of a lot of things being, being lost. Because it goes hand in hand with obviously me being a, a gay woman and a lot of senses of, of things that I've held dear in the gay community about there being a real sense of gay family in London mm. particularly, that's sort of being lost and breaking up a bit as um, now that we have marriage, which of course in so many ways is such a wonderful thing. It sort of has seen a lot of really good aspects of how the gay community all stuck together and partied together. Uh, and now they're sort of breaking off into units and doing the more kind of normative thing of, of getting married and having nuclear families. So in some ways there, there has been a, a huge sense of loss compounded by all of this kind of political shift for, for gay people in this country. Society is kind of shifting. We're a very individualistic society now mm. um, with kind of the whole social media. And, you know, there's a danger towards us becoming all very narcissistic and mm-hmm. um, losing senses. And of how does that kind of... How do your decisions and your relationships trigger to affect other people? Because that was someone else's relationship, but it impacted you, your friend group, what you thought of as a kind of stable relationship. Yeah, I think I trigger think, effect. Yeah, exactly. It was kind of a, it was triggering in some way because I think it it, um, it did make me question mm. so so many things about community and our sense of how we how we treat one another yeah. and where we are at in in society. Um, and I talk about also a social contagion effect where if we see our friends breaking up, we're more likely to leave our relationships mm. as well. So so to some extent, serial monogamy is sort of infectious, if you like. Yes, absolutely, because everyone else is doing it. It's sort of, yeah. you, you think that's the that's the way to do it. And another thing as well that I definitely found really interesting is when you talk about what is defined as cheating. So we all sort of think it would be, oh, well, if my partner slept with someone else. But actually, when you speak to um, Kazi Rahman, who says something that um, Dolly and I found so interesting, that it's not just bonking someone else. So he says when you interview people who actually experience their partners cheating on them, both sexes say it was the emotional aspect, i.e. falling in love with someone else, that was the worst. And I can totally see that. Yet for some reason we have in our head, you know, well, if I caught, you know, if I caught him having sex with someone else, whereas actually that's, that's not the biggest... Yeah, and, and it's, it's interesting yeah. what Cassie is, is talking about there is the difference between the people who have had it happen and the people who hypothetically are thinking about if it Absolutely, would happen. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. There was um, a passage in the book that struck such a chord to me and when I spoke to Pandora, she guessed immediately which one it was. <laughs> um which is where you're talking about being single. You say, I wonder then if our islands of happiness are actually time spent single, Mm. when we're free to be at our most authentic and electrified. Maybe it's during our relationships that we are submerged and drowning in compromise, silenced by the crashing waves. And I think that really spoke to me because personally, I've been on a kind of journey. I've raised those questions that you raise often through the book where it's like, 
have I got a bit of an unhealthy dependence on love and kind of sexual <laughs> yes, yeah. verification? And I've really tried to cultivate in the last year a kind of sense of autonomy and a sense of self-love and I'm enough and whatever. And it is a really beautiful thing. But then on the flip side of it, as Pandora mentioned, with this whole loss of connection thing, there is sometimes a voice in my head thinking, well, is this that? Am I just becoming self-obsessed? Is there, you know, <laughs> is there a lot to be learned as well in the kind of act of loving another in a healthy and measured way? And I just wondered where your kind of boundaries were on that now. Well, it's such a tricky balancing act, isn't it? Um, I think I had been one of those people who had... Um, often hopped from one relationship to the mm-hmm. other without a healthy gap in between. I do think those times spent single are often when we can really, really grow and process things that we've not handled well in, in previous relationships. Um, and kind of recharge, I suppose, and take stock. Yeah, but I mean, I talk about the friend whose partner left her mm-hmm. suddenly when she'd, she'd been um, starting to see this other person. And actually, the, the, the woman who'd been dumped Um, was really energised and started a breakup list of all these amazing things she'd always wanted to do. But for some reason, when she'd been with somebody, kind of just hadn't bothered doing them because you could get settled into a bit of a rut and you just do stuff together and and don't kind of have wild adventures or go abseiling or windsurfing or kind of just doing lots of stuff and getting out there in the world. We sometimes just get a bit lazy when we're with someone. Mm. So I thought that that was quite interesting and I sort of... Uh, called it kind of breakup energy um, because there was this it kind of... It is a thing. I yeah. think it is a thing. I think it is a thing because you suddenly have this real charge about you that you want to go out and, and do stuff in the world and meet new people. And whilst it's painful and you're sometimes feeling very, very hurt, there's positives in that energy as well. And I sort of pose the question as to whether, you know, we could even have sort of gap years in a relationship where you do go off individually and do separate stuff in in that very dynamic way That's and then kind of come back together. Yeah. I don't know if it could work in practice, but I just think, isn't it just interesting to, to throw different new ideas and possible potential relationship structures out there into the into the melting pot to sort of question and think about? The thing that I found really interesting about reading the book at the same time as Dolly and actually, in fact, working with Dolly for the last few years is that we come from such different perspectives on that. So as you say, Dolly, you've been very kind of protective as yourself as a single woman because it has felt very empowering. It's been Mm. very enriching to your work. Mm. You feel kind of your best self. And when I first met you, you were literally terrified of being in a relationship because you were like, this is me at my best. Whereas I've had the kind of opposite thing where my best self has been brought out by being in a relationship, it's empowered me to make better decisions and to feel more confident in the kind of work decisions I've had. But on the flip side, when you are in a you know a traditional heterosexual marriage, the cultural assumptions do drive me quite insane. So everyone <laughs> uses my married surname, even oh, though yes, I haven't changed yeah. my name. And I've written about how I haven't changed my name. And I hate that idea that you function as a single social unit. So if you're invited to something, only yes. one of you gets invited and you're expected to tell the other and mm. to arrange your diaries. Whereas sometimes I might be free and he's not, but I'd still quite like to come. Thank you very much. Yes, and if I invite you to my birthday and your husband can't come, well, I'd like you to still come. <laughs> and I think it's really interesting that you are kind of either, it's that binary thing we come back to isn't it that you're you're either one or the other and there are these quite so you're either as people might have thought before they read your book and become enlightened about it you would think oh well anyone polyamorous must be 
all it must be like eyes wide shut 24 7 just really <laughs> squelchy and sexy and if you're married it must be you bed never socks. do anything interesting yeah. ever again i mean i love bed socks obviously um <laughs> but who you, doesn't <laughs> and that you know you you can't go on a sort of like journey together but ultimately what it is and and this is what i found so interesting and learned from you dolly is that it really is it comes down to how you're feeling in yourself with who you've met at that time you might meet someone who makes you feel like you want to share yourself we're going through mm. with someone else but you might also meet someone that reminds you how much you don't want to be with someone else and I think your book really explores all of those and and something that's so interesting because we get a lot of questions about lack of sex drive and a diminishing yeah. libido oh, yes. is that you're really honest about how your relationship with your ex-partner Jen is for two years I think you said two years is not a sexual yeah, one yeah yeah um we were quite surprised by how many emails we got about it. Yeah, a lot of emails from women. Saying that they don't know how to feel and they don't know if there's something wrong with them. And And what's what's really interesting is how wrong you feel in this society when you're not having sex because Mm -hmm. we live in such a sexualised society Mm. and sex is held up as the thing that, oh, you know, if you're not doing it, then there's obviously something wrong Mm. in your relationship. You should leave immediately. Um, There's a lot of insecurity that we feel um, because we don't talk about it enough and we don't have those discussions where... I think it does seem to be a particular thing um, for women, loss of libido. And, you know, interestingly, there's been a lot of um, stuff written about how women in particular might struggle with um, remaining sexually exclusive with the same partner. There was a book that was out when I was researching my original comedy show by a New York Times journalist, Daniel Bergner, called What Do Women Want? I do think it's kind of funny that, you know, we we have a man telling us what do women want. Mansplaining female sexuality. (laughs) I know. Brilliant, isn't it? But it was actually a pretty interesting book because he does interview a ton of really interesting female scientists about the work they were doing. And it's just interesting how women don't necessarily connect with the vastness of their sexuality. Whereas I think Mm, generally men sort of kind of connect with their sexuality. There's a much more direct conscious link between if they're turned on or not. Mm. Uh, Whereas women, they kind of did experiments where women were shown different types of porn, um, Mm. you know, whether it was straight, gay, animals, whatever it was. Um, And what the women kind of owned up to being turned on by was very, very limited, whereas actually they were measured, you know, sort of physiologically and they were actually turned on by the whole lot of it. Yeah, yeah. And also it's interesting because I think that that women... um, you know, like I still know female friends of mine who say that they don't masturbate or they've never masturbated. Oh, wow. And there's like, I still think there's a culture with women of real shame oh, around their own sexuality. Te- if you asked a bunch of teenage girls, a bunch of teenage boys, I think oh, the yeah. results mm. would be very, it is definitely still something that's thought of as quite shaming. Shameful and dirty. Yeah. And- I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. 
I heard something, and I have no idea if this, this is bullshit, but I heard recently <laughs> that in sort of like prehistoric times or whatever, or not even prehistoric times when, when humans were made, men were kind of programmed to fall asleep after they had an orgasm, whereas women were energised yeah. to go again so they could go and find another male partner in case the one they'd yeah. slept with had not produced a baby. And yeah. then when the baby's born, for the first three weeks, it looks much more like the father than the mother because the mother had been off having loads of dalliances and the father would want to make sure it was his so it would look like him to persuade him that it was okay it was his so biologically women are actually much more able and programmed to to, to have to go dallying lots of different yeah. sexual partners absolutely and, and yeah. i mean that plays out in the natural world as as well sort of promiscuous bonobos and so on <laughs> um, <laughs> i love that as an insult you promiscuous bonobo you yes um but uh, yeah I, I think that that is absolutely true that, that women have had that programming to sort of you know select the best sperm by taking many lovers and it yeah, the, the kind of the fittest sperm would then fertilize the egg, wouldn't it? So it's so interesting that somehow this social construct about female sexuality has has come in where it's seen as something dangerous to be to be repressed and to be limited. Yes, um, and that was really where ideas of monogamy came from. Um, you know, it was all about controlling female sexuality and paternity, like you're saying. Um, and then, unfortunately, men thought, oh, well, we, we might have to go along with this as well. These, these rules, damn it. <laughs> We're going to tell the women what to do. We, we might have to pretend at least to be faithful anyway. <laughs> I love how you explore those gender constructs, particularly as a lesbian in the book, where you say, you know, I thought as a lesbian that I was sort of safe from, <laughs> you know, from cheating or anything destabilising like that, because it was it was men that do that, and men are horrible, and women are lovely and wonderful and yeah. great and gentle and smart and it actually really reminded me of a conversation we had about two years ago when I was saying I can't remember what but I was saying that I thought that women could damage other women more than anyone and Dolly was going no I think it's internalised misogyny I don't think women are capable of I think that they've mm, you know inherited this yeah. way of um, diminishing other women and then more recently you had that sort of rather sad realisation where you were like I think I agree with you yeah I do agree with you more in certain cases but I also think I know the way that I sometimes have behaved with men and I don't want this to sound too blamey and also a good friend of mine who's a gay woman has talked about how she has behaved in the past as well with other women is I look back at what I've done I thought oh that's not very respectful that's not very nice where have I got that from like oh I know where I got that from 10 years of boys doing that to me so I do think that there can be kind of I don't know we can't blame all our misgivings on straight men Some inherited no, but I do think that there is inherited behaviour there as well sometimes I do find myself talking to my female friends though and I have to say to them when they are if they're heterosexual and they're behaving this way to a man I have to say if this was the other way around we'd be sitting here going mm. um, what a dickhead I can't believe he's doing that mm. and because you're doing it to him we're sort of thinking it's okay and you're you're balancing the scorecard but really actually no one should behave that way yeah, we should all, let's just we be honest be ghosting is should... never great yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly we should try and be respectful it's hard isn't it we're all we're all idiots sometimes um, but yeah and then of course you get women behaving towards women like that in in the gay community mm. and you sort of if you do you kind of feel like you're such a bad kind of feminist and you're so unsisterly because you, you treated your fellow woman badly it's like oh no 
so yeah, there's all kinds of complex. You have to have space to be fallible as well. Of course, as you say, yeah, we're not a... goddesses. We're not all perfect. I mean, <laughs> as a feminist, us you can't. Three are, of course, <laughs> you can't necessarily love anyone. Um, just for our last um, few minutes, where are you personally with monogamy or non-monogamy, and where do you think we might be going societally with it? Um, Some big lofty um, predictions. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> where are we going? Well, if we get my crystal ball. Um, well, I mean, it's not too much of a spoiler, I don't think, to say that I do sort of come round to um, finding a new partner towards the end of the book and, and actually embracing monogamy in a sort of much more informed way. Because I think if you feel you have choices, then something like monogamy can feel much more appealing yeah. because you can feel like there were other options. It wasn't just this thing that was assumed so you and chose it, was like, it. You so actively, you, yeah if you actively embrace and choose something it feels it feels much nicer somehow um so, so true yeah yeah i think that's really true i feel um that that i have a really healthy relationship now that is gosh i mean coming up to um i mean in a couple of months that'll be a year which is amazing and it's kind of it's so interesting how i started dating and and i met somebody new just when i was kind of really in the middle of writing the book mm. and of course that's an interesting thing on a first date to say oh i'm writing a book oh what's it called ah okay <laughs> and are you in a monogamous relationship so right yes now, so we um yes we are in a monogamous relationship sexually speaking definitely although i think we because we've had so many discussions about oh, what's your book about I think we have a sophisticated awareness and understanding of the emotional aspect and how friends are important and and um, it now feels like a choice kind of you've thing. made rather than a exactly so and and actually because I have met somebody and I think it's a lot of it is to do with timing about where mm. where I've been at when I've met somebody um, so I have met somebody that I have a great sexual connection with and of course it's so much easier to be sexually exclusive with someone with whom you're having amazing sex do you know mm. what I mean because mm. it's like why, why would I want to go anywhere else now of course it may start to get a little bit dull in, in a couple of years or whatever but I think we have such a good communication around sex mm. and about what we like and what we want that I think that 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 will be okay. I mean, I, I hope so. I, I know that... relationships are hard, but it's just when I've had relationships before, and and I this is an area where I've been really fallible. I haven't been good enough at talking about sex and, and what I need and what I want and what my fantasies are and, and all of these kind of things. I've just been very very limited in my communication of those. Um, whereas now, perhaps as a result of doing these comedy shows and this book, I'm so much better at that. Mm. Does that make you look differently at the non-sexual relationship that you did have for a few years? Or do you think it is possible to have a happy non-sexual monogamous relationship? I think it's tough in this society because because right. we're so sexual in, in the way we discuss and talk about... And you about are happier and... now in a sexual I, I am, actually, but... I don't know if that is that a lot of that is to do with societal pressure. Right. Mm. Yeah. Um, and so it's difficult to say whether it's what, what I need as a human being or it's mm. what I need as a human being mm. in this society where I'm told that I should be having sex. But obviously sex is lovely and sex is really nice and relieves stress and makes me feel connected to my partner and to myself. So, yes, I think there are a whole number of reasons why I feel happier but when I was in the non-sexual relationship, I was masturbating. I still felt in some way connected to my sexual side. Um, so I think it's 
it's really tricky. But well, I mean, the really good part is that myself and my ex, Jen, um, we have a really ongoing friendship. And I still it's feel so lovely like... lovely to read that. And I think that was so important to me that I didn't want some acrimonious breakup and some kind of... I never want to talk to you again and mm-hmm. screaming and shouting and breaking things um, because it hadn't been like that. It was just like something, just one aspect of the relationship just wasn't quite working. And, um, you know, it was really key to me to still maintain some close connection with her and, and long may that continue. I, I hope that it does and I believe that it will. You know, to some extent, you could argue that that's a sort of slightly polyamorous way of thinking, even yeah. though I'm sexually exclusive in my new relationship. But, you know, my new partner... Um, well, she even really suggests up. that Jen moves back in with you because know, you really that. liked living with each other. But then Jen was like, no, I need something yeah, more. Yeah, exactly. Has the book changed your opinion of monogamy, Dolly, whether, again, personally or societally? Well, it's something I've always been really interested in because I've found um, monogamous relationships so difficult, <laughs> so bad at them, and I always <laughs> kind of find myself unsatisfied. Um, but there's a very annoying gap with me between who I am and who I like to think I am so I, I that's in a lot of us yeah I think I call it bohemian dysmorphia so like I, I really wanted to be bisexual and I really tried and it's just like I just I just couldn't be I really wanted to be polyamorous but I'm just naturally so monogamous and that's fine I think the thing that's really important that you say in your book is like it's about questioning and being open-minded. And conversations. And conversations rather than I'm one thing or the other. So, yeah, thank you very much for opening my eyes to all that. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much, Rosie, for taking the time to come on to the Hilo. Um, we found your book fascinating and funny and and really moving and kind of unexpected in, in areas and actually taught us a lot as well. Is there anything you would like to plug? Do you have a show coming up? Where can we find you on social media? Yes. Um, oh, great question. Um, yeah. Well, I'm at Rosie Wilby on social media, on, on Twitter, at Rosie Wilby, R-O-S-I-E-W-I-L-B-Y, and my Facebook page is Rosie Wilby. Um, and I do have a couple of events um, under the heading The Breakup Monologues, which is sort of the final part of my trilogy about love and relationships, um, and the follow-on from Is Monogamy Dead was a show called The Conscious Uncoupling about relationship endings. And a sister project to that is The Breakup Monologues, where I piloted it at Edinburgh Fringe, and I sort of am a kind of, I have a sort of comedy um, therapy session where other comedian friends on the circuit come and tell me their relationship breakup stories. And so Amazing. we kind of have a therapy session on stage, um, and it's really, really fun. And I've got an event at the Vauxhall Tavern in, in Vauxhall on the 11th of October with Pippa Evans who is amazing and we've also got one on the 17th of November at Rich Mix with the wonderful Elf Lyons who was actually shortlisted for the main comedy prize in Edinburgh so and can you book those through your Twitter will there be a yeah you'll you'll be able to um, find find my links or if if you just google breakup monologues Rosie will be um, you'll you'll find it but I I am uh, tweeting those event links out so so yes and I I do hope people obviously um, enjoy the book it's available paperback it's Kindle and audiobook as well yes you can listen to it you can listen to it that is available as well thank you so much to everyone who listened to the high low do tweet us at the high low show or email us the high low show at gmail.com we are back again next wednesday thank you very much to wardle studio for letting us use your little cubby horn (laughs) (laughs) bye bye bye